We're continuing in John chapter 11 today, picking up in verse 47. We're going to read down to the end of this chapter. And what this section of verses is speaking of is the response to after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. If you remember how we ended last week in verses 45 and 46, it tells us this. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And that's the setup for this set of verses today. That they just see this dead man come out of the grave, been raised to life. And we talked about that man's inability To see anything of the truths of God is on full display here outside of the sovereign hand of God. They see without any shadow of a doubt, this man who began to stink, decomposition was there. He'd been dead for four days. They see him come out of the grave and now he's alive. It's indisputable evidence and a witness in front of their eyes. But because they were not, uh, they didn't have their eyes open to the things of God because they weren't his sheep. They couldn't even believe in him even after seeing this amazing miracle. Like, how do you see a dead man come out of the grave and then not believe in the one who did it? Because we are absolutely dependent on God. Unless he opens your eyes, unless you're his sheep, you'll never believe and you'll never see the truths of his word. Even if a dead man was to come out of a grave. And we see that. There's some who believed, and there's some who went and told the Pharisees what had happened. This is where this scene takes place. This is where verse 47 begins. So let's look into the response of what is uh, taking place after Lazarus being raised from the dead. Here's what it says in verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you. We want to come to you with a heart of worship today, a heart of praise, as you are worthy of it all. 
not just because of what you've done, but because of who you are. You are worthy of praise forever. But Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us, as we are so undeserving and so unworthy. God, we thank you that you would bestow these things upon us. So, Father, let us come with a heart of worship today. Let it be in spirit and in truth. And, Father, as we hear this account of the last few days of the life of Christ here on earth, Lord, let us understand the weight of it. Let us, Lord, understand the truth in it. And, Lord, let it speak to our souls today as it is brought to us by the Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a conspiracy to kill Jesus, and we see the, the mindset of these people on this council as they begin to plot to kill Jesus. Now, this is all have been ordained before the world began. We know that there was a specific time, a specific day, a specific minute, and a specific second that Jesus would die. It was ordained before the world was, and we know that these actions of men uh, are being uh, done about in their own evil desire, but it is flawlessly p- bringing together this eternal plan. And it is no accident that this plot happens when it does, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But we see that some believed in this account of, of Jesus and his power after he raised Lazarus from the dead, but some did not. And they go send word to the Pharisees. And how many times have we seen through the gospel according to John that Jesus has interactions and disputes with these people? How many times has he stood in front of them and they accused him of lies or they have not believed in him or they've tried to stone him or they've tried to seize him? It has been on many occasions that we've seen this. And now this plot begins to thicken because the days are now numbered. The intensity is beginning to increase. The hatred for Christ is beginning to be at an all-time high. As we said, that when we come to chapter 12, we're less than a week away. We're six days away when we come to the night's verses that he will die. It says in verse 47, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. And this council would have been the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin. It was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees and chief priests. And this was the religious and the political body, if you will, of Israel at the time. One of the well-known people on this council we found in John chapter 3 in the form of Nicodemus. But this is the council that is the overseers, if you will, the legislative body, not only of the political realm, but of the spiritual realm among the Jews. And they convened this council. And the question that arises in their mind is this, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. That's undeniable. You cannot deny that Jesus is doing these things. They are hearing it. They are seeing it. Even sometimes right in front of their faces. You remember the man that was born blind. He heals him and they all see. They know that he's doing this. And they are concerned among themselves for their power, their prestige. And you see that unfold in their response. Look what they say in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Jesus is gaining steam, if you will. There are many people that are coming to him despite the hostility and the objections that are being raised by the religious leaders. We're going to find that in John chapter 12, where, you know, One of the verses that I like to use when we start to look at the word world, 
So many people will come to John 3.16 that do not believe in the doctrines of grace. And they'll say, well, the whole world means every single person that's ever walked on this planet. Well, then we come to John chapter 12, and there's a lot of people that are believing in Christ, and the Pharisees are getting worried, and they're getting more worried. And in John chapter 12, verse 19, it says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. It doesn't take us five seconds to realize the whole world's not went after him. We don't even have to expand on that. What does that mean? There's different version or words and usage of the word world. But what this is showing in context is that through his signs, through his message, that many people are starting to believe in Jesus. And these people on the Sanhedrin, they are concerned because they don't want their power to be thwarted. They don't want their power to be come and taken away. They don't want to lose their prestige. And they're also worried that the Romans will see this, this uprising, if you will, and they'll say, we've got to squash this. Because if you remember, when the Romans came and they occupied a place, they would still give a little bit of freedom to those people that they conquered. The Jews could still uh, worship as they saw fit within a certain parameter. They could still self-govern a little bit in their, among themselves. But they're afraid that not only is all these people going to start following Jesus if they don't do something, they're going to lose control. But the Romans are going to come and take away the temple. They're going to come and take away their power. And everything that they hold dear will be taken away. This is their concern. They hate Jesus. And it has grown and grown up to this point. And now it is at a point to where the only response they find necessary, the only logical thing they can come up with is this. we got to kill him. This is the evil in their heart. Verse 49, it says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Now, what's interesting here is Caiaphas was a Sadducee. And I want to just briefly mention on this. In this council, and maybe you've seen this through Scripture, you've seen a Sadducee and a Pharisee. And they're not the same. But in the Sanhedrin, they were mixed. There were Sadducees and there were Pharisees. And the Pharisees, we've We've talked a lot about Pharisees, but they were the ones that were trying to hold to the law down to the to every little command. And they didn't believe in grace or anything of that nature. But then even the things that they were trying to hold on to in the Old Testament, they had distorted and they had uh, they had just ruined the context of that. They were the ones who were <coughs> rebuked by Jesus so many times throughout Scripture. But then you have the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the spiritual realm. They didn't believe in such things as angels or anything of that nature. They did not believe in those truths. So they didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The Pharisees did. So there's some, even some disagreements. And that's just kind of the surface level of some of their disagreements. But the Sadducees and the Pharisees often disagreed. They, they didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. But what you're going to see is that they are going to lay aside those differences for a common goal. And here's the one thing they can agree on. We hate him. We hate Jesus. So let's lay aside these differences. Let's come together in this council. And here's the thing we can agree on. We've got to kill this guy. And the high priest here, Caiaphas, he was a Sadducee. Didn't believe in the resurrection. Didn't believe in those things. But he's a high priest here at this time. And then we see something amazing. I think that it's, he doesn't even know he's doing this. In verses 49, 
down. He says this, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Do you know that God sovereignly and providentially used Caiaphas here? Even in the, Caiaphas had evil intentions is what he said. He was telling the people there, it is better for everyone here that this one man die so the whole nation doesn't perish. There was evil in his heart when he said it. He hated Christ and he was speaking these evil thoughts this day. But God sovereignly, providentially used Caiaphas and his words to be a prophecy describing the beauty and the purpose of the death of Christ. He doesn't even know the truth and the depth of what he's saying, but God is using these words that he meant for evil to be beauty. He's using it to speak truth that actually will come about. And God sometimes uses ungodly people and things to you. He uses them for his purpose. We go back to the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, chapter 22. God used a donkey. He spoke through a donkey to relay these truths that needed to be relayed. He spoke through a donkey. We see in Ezra, uh, in Ezra chapter 1 that King Cyrus, who was a Persian king, who was not a godly man, uttered these words that, that the Jews could go back and they could be set free from captivity from the Babylonians and they would go back to Jerusalem and they would start to rebuild their temple. And he utters these words in Ezra chapter 1. And why did he utter these words? Because in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, Jesus, or God says this. He says that Cyrus is mine. He is my shepherd. He will accomplish what I have him accomplish. So God prophesies that they will come back and the temple will be rebuilt and they'll be set free from the Babylonian uh, captivity. And here God uses this ungodly king in the book of Ezra in referencing to Cyrus to use the same words that need to be spoken to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 44. He spoke through a donkey. He spoke through an ungodly king to bring about these prophetic truths. And we are even going to see in John chapter 18 that he's going to speak a word through Pilate. We're going to learn about this a little bit later. We won't get into it now, but it, in the Old Testament, the Passover lamb would be inspected for a certain amount of days. And at the last of those days that they would have to make a verdict, they would have to make a judgment and they would have to determine whether or not the Passover lamb was without blemish and it was worthy to be slaughtered and slain. And as Jesus is the Passover lamb, he's going to come into Jerusalem on this Passion Week. And throughout this week, he's going to be examined. And then we're, we need to have that final verdict. Is he worthy? Is he the Passover lamb that's worthy to be sacrificed and slain? And out of this ungodly man, Pilate, we have that verdict. When in John chapter 18, verse 38 says, I find no guilt in him. That God would speak and use the evil intentions or sometimes unknowing words of people to bring about his divine purpose. And this is what he's doing through Caiaphas. 
Caiaphas is saying, guys, it's better if this guy dies so that we don't lose our power, so that this nation does not fold upon itself. It's better that one man die so that the nation will not perish. But not just for this nation is he's going to die. He says a little later, he says this, read it again. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, that the whole nation not perish. And he goes in verse 52, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What is this prophecy that he's saying? What is the truth that he's saying? He's saying that it is better that this one man should die so that those who are called among the nation of Israel, and who are those who are scattered abroad? The Gentiles. There's the mystery of the gospel. It is the best thing that could ever happen. So that those who are the elect among the Jew and those who are the elect among the Gentiles can be brought into one and they will not perish. He's speaking the truth. He doesn't know he's speaking that truth. But it's the only hope that we have. It's expedient that Jesus die. Because without that, everyone perishes. But because this one would die, those who are his among the Gentiles and the Jews would be brought into one and they would not perish all through the working of the death of this one. And we know that those who believe in him will not perish. We find that in John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And in John 10, 28, speaking of the sheep, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Caiaphas has no idea the truth and the depth of what he's saying, but God uses those words to speak the beauty of what is getting ready to happen. It is expedient that he die. It is necessary that he die so that those who believe in him will not perish. And we should be thankful for that. He goes on to say this. In verse 53, what is the response to that? So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. You see, there's where the Pharisee and the Sadducee lay down their swords of disagreement and come into united cause to kill Jesus. They could agree on that. They disagreed on the resurrection. They disagreed on a few things, but they could, they could agree that they hated him and he must die. And what we see here is that they already have made up in their mind that he's guilty. They've already made up in his mind that he should die. And in Proverbs 17, 15, it says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. They were to have a trial, a fair trial. Witnesses, we know this is how it was set up in the Old Testament, but they had already made up their mind that he was guilty. And to that degree, in the eyes of the Lord, it was an abomination. Pilate's going to say he was not guilty, but they've already made up their mind he is because they hate him with all their being. Verse 54 says, Therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness, to the city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the, the disciples. This plot to kill him, this conspiracy to kill him is in place. 
And Jesus then goes away privately to this place. And these are going to be the final few moments, these final intimate moments that he's going to spend with his disciples before he's going to turn his eyes back to Jerusalem. He's going to go to Bethany. And then he's going to go to Jerusalem, but the moments are closing down. The moments are winding down. His life is coming to an end. The hour is coming. And before he rides in to Jerusalem on Passion Week, he retreats privately to spend these moments with his disciples in this intimate exchange, in this intimate time with them. They had come so far. They had done so many things. They'd spent so many days and nights together. And now that his life is winding to an end, He spends these moments with them again. And then there will be that moment where he says it's time to go that way. It's time. And he's going to start heading back in towards Jerusalem. Tonight we're going to find what happens before he rides into Jerusalem. He's going to be anointed by Mary, but his days are winding down. That hour that we've talked about for so long, you can see it. You can feel it. It's coming It's so close. But he has withdrawn and he's privately there with the disciples. And then in verse 55, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. They would go up before the actual festivity would begin and they would start to purify themselves. They could start to exchange their currency they would start to look to purchase these animals to sacrifice. Remember, if they didn't want to travel with these animals, they had stations and, and places set up there that they could buy these animals. If you remember, all this was taking place in the temple. That's why he cleared the temple out in the starting of John, John chapter 2, if you remember that. They were using it for greed and they were bringing dishonor to the house of God and These people would go up early for that. And the buzz was in the air. Not only was there excitement for it, it was the Passover, but there was also some excitement in the air. There was also some some mystery in the air. What was the buzz in the air as all these people were gathering before the Passover was to begin? The question that was on everyone's mind was, will Jesus be here? Will he come to this Passover? He's come to every one of them so far. He's a Jew. This is one of the required uh, feasts that they were to attend. Will he come? They know. The Bible is going to tell us that these Pharisees and the chief priests, they've already given out the, the, the marching orders. They've already given out the instructions. And here's the instruction that everyone knows. If Jesus shows up to Passover, you report him, we're going to arrest him. That's what everybody's knowing. They know that if he shows up, he's going to be seized and he's going to be killed. So the talk amongst everybody is, do you think he's going to show up? Where's he at? Do you see him? Maybe he won't come. Maybe he won't come to this Passover. Maybe he's too scared. Maybe he doesn't want to die. Maybe that he's got word of this, uh, this plot and this conspiracy against him. And maybe he just won't show up. Oh, I don't know. I think he'll show up. Will he show up? I don't know if he'll show up. Do you see him? Is he here? This is the talk of the, of the town, if you will. We see that in the ending, or in verse 56. So they were seeking to, for Jesus. 
and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so they might seize him. Can you imagine this scene? All these people ascending on Jerusalem. All these people there. And what's on everybody's mind is where is Jesus? And will He even show up? Will He show up at the Passover? Not only is He going to show up at the Passover, He's the fulfillment of the Passover. Not only is He going to show up at the Passover, He's going to be the Passover lamb. Is He coming? Oh, He's coming. He's coming because it is going to be at this feast that He will die. It will be at the Passover that He, the true Passover lamb, will die. From all eternity past, it was this Passover that was marked on the heavenly calendar to where the true Passover lamb would show his love for his sheep and willingly lay down his life. One of the types and shadows that we have done in the past is the Passover. And it is pointing to Christ. Where we see that the Passover lamb would be selected. And then for a certain number of days, the Passover lamb, like we mentioned, would be examined to make sure that there was no defect, no blemish, and it was worthy to be slain. And as Jesus is going to come into Passion Week, as He's going to ride into Jerusalem, He's going to spend the same amount of days being tested, being tried, being on examination, if you will, to determine if He truly is worthy, if He truly is the Passover Lamb. And that is why what Pilate says in John 18 is so important, because Pilate gives that declaration. After the week of being examined, they find no fault in Him. He is worthy to be slain. He is worthy to be sacrificed. And you know that in the Old Testament, in the Passover, that they were not able to break the legs of that animal. We see that the legs of Christ were not broken. There's so many things that tie into this, but we see that it is the blood of the Lamb that was applied to the door, and that everyone who had faith in that, in that blood, in that work, they would go into the house and as the death angel would pass by, that they would look, and they wouldn't look at the worthiness of the people in the house. They would look at the worthiness of the blood on the house. Because the Passover lamb was slain. He is the one that is perfect. It is His blood that is perfect. And then His blood is applied to us. We are not worthy. But He is. It is His righteousness that covers us. We are not worthy. But when God looks at us, He doesn't look at us. He looks at the blood of the Passover lamb. He looks at the righteousness of the Passover lamb. And that is why we have eternal life. He is the Passover lamb. Is He coming to the Passover? He is the Passover. He is that lamb. This is His hour. It's coming. And He's going to show up to this Passover. And if you want some more beauty of the Passover, the Passover lamb would be sacrificed in the Old Testament at 3 p.m. in the evening. That is when the Passover lamb would be slaughtered and slain. And that is why the Bible tells us that Jesus 
at 3 p.m. cries with a loud voice, Father, into, my, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up his life. He died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The same time the Passover lamb would be slain in the Old Testament. That's just the tip of the iceberg of the types and shadows on that. Maybe we'll go through that again someday. We find that John one twenty nine. if you remember when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, it says this in John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, takes away the sin of the Jew and to the Gentile. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also has been sacrificed. Is he coming to the Passover? He's coming to fulfill it. He's coming to be the Passover lamb. And it's expedient, Caiaphas, listen, it's expedient that he come. So the death of this one man, not only would those that are his among the Jew not perish, but those who are the Gentile would not perish because that's the only hope we have is in this Passover lamb. We believe in His blood. We pass through that door. They passed through that door and believed. Jesus is that door. And His blood is applied. His blood is precious. He is worthy. And that is why we escape death through Him, our Passover Lamb. You can feel the intensity picking up in Jerusalem, can't you? Is He coming? If we see him, we got to report him. He's coming. He'll be there on his specific day, his specific hour, as it has been appointed, as he is the Passover lamb. I mean, look back through John as we begin to wind this down. Look through John. Would you say that Christ divides? <laughs> That's all he does through the Gospel of John. They either believe in Him or they don't. They either love Him or they hate Him. Look what happens here after this miracle of Lazarus. Some believe and some despise Him even more to bring about this plot to kill Him. See, this is what we have to understand as we live in this world. Christ divides. Luke chapter 12 tells us that. Think that I come to bring peace? I come to bring a sword. I come to bring division. Even among family members, even among friends, Christ divides. It is what we do with Christ. It is what our belief in Christ is that is that dividing line. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. What's the divider? Do you believe in Christ? You're either a wheat or you're a tare. There's no in between. All these are divided with a hard line and that hard line is Christ. You're either a sheep or a goat. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either for God or you're against Him. You're either dead in sin or you're alive in Christ. The division is Christ. Do you believe in Him? We see that some love Him, some believe, and now this hatred among the people who do not believe. He brings division. All through John we've seen it. And now we see it on full display after this story of Lazarus.
they're going to plot, they're going to kill him, they're going to seize him. This is the order that's been given. And all this for an innocent man. And they began to question. That's the question. Is he going to show up? Is he afraid? He is the Passover lamb. And Caiaphas was right, even if he didn't know the true meaning of what he said. It was better that this one die so that those who believe among the Jew and the Gentile would not perish. And who's the one that would die to make this a reality? Christ, the true Passover lamb. There's so much beauty in that. I would love to spend the next two hours working through the type and shadow of the Passover lamb, but I'm not going to do that today, maybe someday. But it's so beautiful. He is the fulfillment of the Passover. He's not afraid of these people. It's just not his time yet. But his hour's coming. It's getting so close. And that hour to which he would lay down his life would be at the Passover. When our Passover lamb would be slain so that by his blood we could be covered. And by His righteousness, we could be covered. And we could have eternal life through Him. Is He coming to the Passover? I think we know the answer, don't we? He's coming to fulfill it because He is the Passover Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You sent Your Son your one and only Son, the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Lord, we thank You that we love You. Lord, we love You not because we're special, but because You loved us first. And Lord, we would be like these people today. We would be like the people in the world today that hate You and despise You if You would have not come and brought our heart to life. Lord, the only reason we love you is because you loved us first and you have caused us to be born again. You have brought affection to our souls. And Lord, now we love you. Lord, thank you for that mercy and that grace that you've shown upon us. Lord, we know the world hates you. Lord, and as Christians, it will hate us if we stand for truth and righteousness because you have told us that's the case. You said that they hated you first, and they will hate us. The student is not above the master. Lord, let us understand that, and let us be bold in our stance. Let us know that it is a reality that we will be hated because they hate you. They hate the things that you speak of. They hate the truth because the truth is not in them. But Lord, we thank you today that we believe. We thank you today that you have loved us first. And Lord, we thank you that it was expedient that you die for us. It was the only hope we had that you die so that we would not perish, but we would have eternal life. Lord, we praise you for that. And Lord, we thank you that you are the Passover lamb. 
Look, you are the one who came. You are the one who was inspected. You are the one who was without guilt. You are the only one who was worthy to be slain as you are perfect and your blood is precious. Lord, it is not in and of, our, of ourselves that we take our hope and we find our salvation, but it is of you. It is your blood that we are covered by. It is your righteousness that clothes us. Lord, and we give you thanks for that. You are the Lamb of God who have taken away our sins. Are you coming to the Passover? The answer is yes, you did. To fulfill it and to be our Passover Lamb. To you be the glory and the honor forever. Amen.